Hello, it's Tim Watton. That's Cotton with a W. Welcome to the GIF podcast, which focuses on the power of the mind and being more present to overcome life and health challenges, bringing more resilience, calm and joy. I'm absolutely delighted today that my guest is Michael Banks. From working with criminalized Jamaican youth in South London to coaching CEOs in major corporations, Michael has always been an educator. He is a published author, a spoken word performance artist, a public storyteller, and he recently launched his podcast series, Heroic Journeys from Crisis to Transformation. And when you hear him speak, you'll understand why he's got such an amazing voice. Michael also loves music, cookery, cricket, so he takes after me. Um, Not so after me, he likes Crystal Palace Football Club. Um, He lives with the love of his life, Karen Jordan, in a little village called Brook near Norwich in Norfolk, UK, with their two gorgeous young terrier dogs, Freddie and Rana. Welcome to the show, Michael. Thank you, Tim. Good to be here. I'm delighted to be uh, your guest and honoured too. Thank you. And uh, as listeners will discover as you speak, you've had a, quite a roller coaster of life and would say that you've had both life and health challenges that you've uh, overcome. And it sort of got me thinking of a quote by John Lennon. Life is what happens while you are busy making other plans. <laughs> what do you think about that? Um, yeah, uh, the best, it it reminds me of another quote actually, which I'll probably get wrong, which is, uh, the, the best laid plans of mice and men. (laughs) John Steinbeck will be, uh, you, you have had, you have had a roller coaster of a life, perhaps share with the listeners some of the highs and lows. Yeah, sure. Um, absolutely. The um, let me just—it's—it's uh, it's very hard for me to just to to figure out the where to start there. I'll—I'll—I'll um, I'll, I'll go through a few of them. I suppose the first low was being uh, unwittingly dumped into an English boarding school in the late '60s, where I had to fend for myself for 10 weeks without being allowed to see my parents mm. because the theory was that it would give the young boys backbone to not, to yeah. not be their family for, <laughs> for, a, for a, uh, when they first arrived there for the first whole of the first term. Uh, all it did really was uh, ended up traumatizing me and uh, doing, uh, contributing to my inability to locate an emotion or a feeling for many years uh, because I had to defend myself from myself. Uh, so therefore I, I learned to, uh, to kind of suppress my feelings um, even though they were, my feelings were really uh, pretty horrendous like terrible sadness, fear, loneliness, frustration and so on. Um, so, you know, that, uh, that period in my life in an English public, which of course is a private boarding school uh, back in the late 60s. Life was pretty grim and people were 
the kids were tormented, teased and bullied by the older kids. And I was no exception. Mm. Um, so I was traumatized at that age. And I, um, it took me until I was 25 until I actually was able to uh, rid myself of the trauma and get out of my self again um, and, and, and relocate my feelings. I think that was a low. Um, and then uh, I think a high was going from the uh, rarefied atmosphere of, uh, of Reading University studying English literature um, and doing a postgraduate in education from, uh, from going from that into the, at the time, the worst part of London, which was Peckham <laughs> in southeast London. Um, and and uh, so I went from the academic world as a middle-class, white, privileged, young, very young man into an environment where one needed to make sure that you didn't get a knife in the back, that your car wasn't broken into and you weren't mugged. Because um, in those days, the you know, guns really weren't there. Um, but my, my joy at that time was the liberation of actually doing something rather than just talking and reading books. Yeah. <laughs> And so I, I was helping. I worked with five to 21-year-olds. Uh, and it was like the, the, the place of last resort. I ran the Peckham Adventure Playground in the largest uh, low-rise, high-density estate in Europe, which is already a slum, um, 10 years after it had first been built. Um, and it was, gave me a lot of satisfaction to actually do something in the world that was practical to help people, um, including putting 36-foot telegraph poles into the ground with other people's help. Wow. Uh, and uh, we used to get the telegraph poles from, from the docks in the days before the dock lands were built up. With, uh, but anyway, that's another story. But it was very satisfying. Um, and then a, then a huge high was at the end of that, after three years, um, I went through the Exegesis program, which was a self-realization uh, seminar, a voyage of self-discovery, in which I learned uh, what my relationship was with my own mind, my feelings, emotions. Um, and, and I realized primarily that I wasn't my mind, I wasn't my thoughts, I wasn't my feelings. I was the consciousness that was experiencing all of that. Okay. And that transformed my life completely. That's very pioneering. Uh, especially for England back in uh, 1980. In fact, it was so pioneering that uh, we got a lot of flack. Uh, the guy that started the whole program, Robert Daubeny, for three days running was on the front page of the Daily Mirror. And um, you know, the, the headlines were brainwashing cult, <laughs> which I find very funny. And even then I thought, this is so silly. You know, when the BBC turned up to do a documentary on us, um, and they, they, of course they skewed the whole thing, so it looked like a brainwashing cult when they presented it on TV despite the fact that we'd asked them to really, you know, do a, a factual presentation of what we were about. Me being on the inside, it was like, cult? What are you talking about, cult? Um, uh, it was illuminating. But anyway, that, that, that was an incredible high, Tim, uh, for me to have that self-realization, that literally a transformation of my whole reality. And it's, uh, it changed my whole life and it, in many ways. And I'm still benefiting from that realization okay uh, you are, yeah, you've got so much to share um i was particularly fascinated in um 
what you achieved highs and lows in America? Yeah, that was, um, that was interesting. The, well, I, first of all, I arrived in America in San Francisco with two phone numbers and names attached. Um, I literally had the proverbial, you know, suitcase and a couple of numbers. Uh, I started for nothing. Um, but I did very well and uh, ended up, my first sort of big gig, if you like, was, was doing team building for American Express. And um, I did it locally and ended up doing most of my work with them in New York at their headquarters, working with their top executives. And also, uh, which was great, traveling around the world, places like Singapore, Tokyo, Hong Kong, Europe, um, working with their executive teams. Um, but then I also joined a company called KRW International back in 96. And by 2001, we were considered by most people to be the number one executive coaching firm in America. Uh, and I was the first partner there, aside from the two founders. Wow. So it was very prestigious what I was doing. I was also very, uh, it was very lucrative. I mean, in those days, we used to charge a huge amount of money for executives to be coached for 12 to 18 months. We're talking about $150,000 for one person. Mm. Uh, and my daily fee was through the roof. And this was, was way more. For those yeah. that maybe are not familiar with executive coaching, because I I know what it is, but it's leadership development, it's improving how they show up, um, giving them core skills. Yeah, I mean, for, for me, it's, uh, you know, nowadays I call myself a leadership expert. What it was primarily about um, was helping these leaders to become more self-aware. That was the first step, self-awareness. So they understood the impact they had on other people around them. Okay. And directly or indirectly, thousands of people. Uh, it was about self-awareness, uh, and nowadays, of course, it, you could call it emotional intelligence. Yes. Um, so, in a sense, I was teaching emotional intelligence 30 years ago before anyone had ever heard of the term, uh, before Daniel Goldman wrote the book back in 95, or published it. Um, and uh, But anyway, so going back to KRW, we were riding high and doing extremely well, and I was on the treadmill there. Um, I had pretty two-dimensional life, but it was great because we were conquering the world and we were about to be bought by a public company. Uh, we, in fact, we had four public companies after us. Wow. So they'd all done the research and they'd all thought, yeah, but you're the best. We want you. So we finally succumbed and said, okay, we'll, we'll go to the big beast uh, and get sucked into the public company uh, monster, which of course... It is when you've got a great little private community of a company. Um, and just about, we were just about to sign when 9-11 came along. And you talk about highs and lows. Uh, well, then I went from the high to the low, which was KRW, my company, almost uh, went under. Uh, I had to leave because at the same time that the partners decided to take no income, to keep it afloat, to keep some staff on board. Um, I also left my marriage. So I had this big house on the Hudson River with a big mortgage um, and an expensive wife <laughs> and no income. And suddenly I went from being wealthy 
uh, you know, the, the, the brand new BMWs disappeared. Uh, I ended up having to rent a place in Manhattan while she still stayed there. And very quickly, I lost everything and went into minus mode. No savings, no investments, no assets, no nothing. Um, and so that was financially a low, but it was also a high because I was, I felt liberated. I was able to move away from a, a marriage that uh, was in which I was dying spiritually and probably physically as well in the end. And, and so when you, a, sorry, Mike, but when you, uh, you know, it's that, that sort of yin and yang, cause you know that, you know that things are relatively good. You're doing well, but there's this voice in your head saying, but are you, how do you, do you feel that what you do is right for you, Michael? Did you hear that voice? Um, yeah, actually I heard it. And also it was, it was actually echoed by uh, people around me who knew me well, who cared about me. My uh, business partner at KW, who at the time was very, I was very good friends with as well, Catherine Williams. She actually said to me at, at one point, Michael, you're dying. You've got to get out. You've got to get out of your marriage. Um, and I knew that uh, on one level, everything was fine. I mean, you know, beautiful house, beautiful car, beautiful wife, lots of money, you know, a vacation in St. Bart's, you know, expensive sushi at least once a week, no problem. On that level, it was fantastic. But I did, I was conscious enough to know that it was, uh, it wasn't working, you know. So the answer to your question is yeah. Um, I was aware of what was going on, but couldn't see a way out. Um, I just couldn't see a way out. In fact, I used to wonder how the hell can I get out of this, this treadmill that I'm on? Yeah. I couldn't see. I just couldn't see. Now, I'm not sure where it fitted into your history, but you actually had a near-death experience, didn't you, in Egypt? Yes. Um, that was... That fit in? Was that before? Yeah. Before I went to America, yeah. Chronologically, oh, okay. I was 32. And of course, as I suppose it is the case many times with people, I was the strongest and most fit that I'd ever been. Um, I was working out um, and every day and I went to Egypt with the company I was with, the experimental organization that came, uh, stemmed from this exegesis program. Yeah. Uh, that's a whole other story, but we chartered a couple of jet planes and took over a Kladmet village in Egypt. So 500 of us and it was just us in, on the shore of the, the Red Sea. We had an amazing time. Um, and then the night that I got back, I started to get a pain. Um, I was due to, this was a Thursday, I think, I was due to run my first seminar in telephone marketing, public <laughs> telephone marketing seminar in London. I was very excited and my mentor um, in Programs Training Limited said to me, uh, Karen, she said, um, Michael, you've done some great work and you're ready to now be a senior trainer for the first time. So I was like, this is it, I've made it. <laughs> um, but she also said, there's, there's, you've really worked on yourself well, but there's a little kernel, kernel, there's a little nut, there's a little bit there that is still yet to be cracked. And so I thought to myself, bring it on. 
I want to crack that little kernel. That's and what she meant by that. It's about ego. Yeah. Okay. Um, and um, so what I didn't do, if you believe in these things, is I didn't specify the nature of the sledgehammer to crack the nut. <laughs> so there I was, I was in pain. Um, I actually did lead the training very successfully. Although when I went to the front of the room to address everyone, I would say my bit, hand over to, to my four coaches who were on my team, go out into the corridor at the back of the room and double over in mm. pain. So I managed to get through it, yeah. went into the hospital. Two, two weeks after there, they said, we, you're, you should be fine now. We've, we've actually got rid of your salmonella and shigella, which you picked up in Egypt. So uh, you know, from now on, you'll be getting better. And I didn't. Two weeks after that, I a month into uh, being in hospital, I got a visit at 7.30 on a Sunday morning from the top guy of the hospital with his T-shirt still on. He'd come straight from a party. Um, and he sat down and said, kid, you're fucking ill. And we're going to, uh, we don't know what's wrong with you, but we are going to um, open you up today to see if we can save you. Oh. And they, I said, when are you going to do it? He said, three o'clock this afternoon. I said, well, look, seven, can't you do it any quicker? <laughs> and he, and he, went, he went, I'm sorry, there's a, there is a bit of a cue. Um, so they did. And what they discovered was incredible. They discovered that my appendix had grown into the stomach wall oh. and formed an abscess. And that both the abscess and the appendix had exploded weeks before. So I should have been dead. So my whole body was, they took two, two, it's gruesome, two liters of pus out of me. They had to cut um, some of my colon out where the abscess had grown and exploded. Um, I woke up with 10 different tubes coming out of me. Um, they had a conference, uh, literally of doctors from around Great Britain to discuss why I was still alive. <laughs> uh, how come that was the case? And they couldn't reach consensus. And, um, so yeah, and then, you know, after a couple of months later, they replumbed me. I had a, oli a coleostomy. It's a bag where you, yeah, where you basically go to the loo outside yeah. into a bag. But anyway, they put all of that back. So thank God. Um, and then uh, my father said, uh, you know, you're you're getting better physically, but your spirits need you know, still need to recover. Where would you like to go to in the world? I'll pay for it. Oh, um, nice. I ended up on my own in Thailand for three weeks in the, the very best hotels. <laughs> I took it far. <laughs> um, and it was very restorative. But going back to the, uh, to the situation I was in, what, what's interesting is um, what did I get out of that? What, what, what was the transformation that occurred from that true crisis? Um, well, first of all, I know this, this, you're interested in the power of the mind. Well, the people would come into my room before that Sunday. I remember it was, it was a Friday, I think. And they would come in with flowers and, you know, tiptoe up to my bed and, and, and whisper and say, are you okay? And I'm so sorry and all that, which is very kind. And of course, uh, but Joe Pritchard, who is a colleague and friend of mine who I work with in London, from Yorkshire, where they tend to be blunt. Fairly blunt, yeah. Very direct and blunt. And he just came up and he literally stuck his head, or his face in front of my face, and shouted at me. And he said, are you gonna die? 
And I thought for a moment, I was lying there like half dead already. I went, no, I shouted at him, no, I'm not. <laughs> and I firmly believe to this day that I made a decision that affected my life and death scenario. Oh, okay. And uh, I'm still grateful to Joe. He saved my life. Um, and um, no end to what Yorkshireman can do. <laughs> well, I think Joe Root and uh, Johnny Bairstow need to save the English cricket team in the next test. Yeah, uh, as yeah. true Yorkshiremen, they better get stuck in there. Um, but um, aside from that, no, I mean it was really amazing. But but then also, the, what what did I get from it? Well, you know, I know what it was like to be reduced to uh, to nothing. With there's no preciousness left in that I was able to hold on to you know when you're naked literally when you're helpless when you have to then recover at your parents house in the country and I remember taking one step out of the front door and then this the second day two steps with the help of a, a walking stick walking stick yeah and then three steps it literally was one extra step a day and I had to become, well, I couldn't help it. I was completely vulnerable. Um, and so I learned from that experience to, op I became more open hearted and more able to give and receive love. Okay. And as you, as you're speaking about both that traumatic health, close to death moment, and also going from super highs, um, executive coaching to, effectively being bankrupt or or close to I was. I, okay I was it's sort of i was drawn towards snakes and ladders the board <laughs> yeah. you go up you're near the top and then you're right long long snake takes you back to to pretty much start of the game start of the life is that how it can feel for you yeah definitely except i don't want it to happen again no but <laughs> twice at least twice is enough well you know that's um Definitely, it's, but there's, there's, my whole shtick, if you like, is that there truly is benefit to be found in crisis and catastrophe. And so um, instead of getting stuck in the, and only seeing the negatives, uh, what can you learn and, and how can you benefit from uh, like, a near-death experience like that. And then later on, of course, my kidney failure and transplant and all that. Um, what can you learn from those times in your lives? And uh, so, yes, the fall is horrible in many ways, but the, the benefits can be massive. I mean, even when our house burned down, <laughs> there was a benefit. Was that in America? Was. In America, yeah. Okay. Um, in 2007, uh, the year after my bankruptcy, <laughs> the house burned down. Uh, and, but there was some benefit in it. The, if nothing else, after 12 months, when they'd sorted the insurance out, suddenly we realized, Karen and myself, was like, wow, we can get a whole new wardrobe. <laughs> we can get a whole new set of clothes. This is so exciting. So we had the money. It was like a hundred Christmases in one. And we thought, let's go out and buy some, the clothes we really want, a whole new wardrobe and some new furniture and all that. How exciting was that? It was very exciting. So um, 
Karen, 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 sorry, is, yeah. is your current uh, partner who you met um, after you separated from your wife? No, no, actually, much later. Much later. Uh, after I separated from my wife, I actually met uh, um, another lady who, um, who actually, I, um, who wrote a book, who I helped write a book. Um, Christine Arena, she wrote a book called Cause for Success. And we moved to back from the East Coast to the West Coast so that I could fund her to write the book. And uh, and uh, she had very expensive tastes. Her her father was the CEO of Neiman Marcus, and uh, so she was used. So so there I was maxing out my non-existent. Uh, you know, <laughs> after I'd lost all my money, I still had some credit. So my platinum American Express was maxed out as I bought the best furniture for our apartment in uh, Muir Beach in in the Bay Area in San Francisco um, because she needed to have. The, the right conditions to to write the book to write the book <laughs> <laughs> um, which she did and it was uh, it was a very good book and I helped her do it with by getting all the interviews for the various corporate leaders and entrepreneurs that we needed to interview um, and later on I actually um, well that's a, another story through a through a psychic who I met uh, first in Long Beach California uh, he gave me information that led to me getting her uh, a publishing deal with Harper Collins in New York mm. um, with, the, with the woman who founded Harper Collins. And uh, that's, that's another story. That's me and this guy, Gene, and him channeling my great grandmother and my father wow. in the middle of the street on a cold February uh, <laughs> winter's day in Long Beach. And um, and giving me information about this woman at Harper Collins, who I later contacted directly, and even told her that I had this information from a friend of mine in those circumstances. She got back to me within 24 hours and set up a meeting uh, for me to uh, meet with her top guy, her chief exec or whatever, and then had Christina on the phone from San Francisco while I was there in the office in Park Avenue. And uh, they said, "Yeah, we want to publish your second book." Oh wow! Uh, and I, for the for the first book, I got eight eight dollars. <laughs> I, I actually invested about one hundred and fifty thousand <laughs> <laughs> on the PR training, her clothes for the for the publicity, the you know making sure she didn't have to work for a whole year, um, et cetera, et cetera. I worked out about one hundred and fifty grand, maybe one hundred and twenty-five. A lot of money, anyway. But I got eight dollars back. <laughs> the economies of scale there. Yes. Um, but but uh, you you mentioned, um, if you don't mind me, just um, yeah. leaning in on one particular part of your roller coaster. You just mentioned just briefly, but I'm drawn towards it, the fact you had chronic kidney disease. So, how recently did that occur, Michael? In 2012, I was diagnosed with uh, chronic kidney disease and uh, I went to the nephrologist in San Francisco at the hospital there and uh, he said yeah you know you could go for years without actually having kidney failure we make sure your blood pressure is kept at a certain level etc etc um, but uh, and I tried a few things like qigong which was great for a few months until Christmas arrived and then 
you know, I was too busy having fun at Christmas, eating and drinking, and so that went out the window. And then a quack homeopathic doctor who I spent a lot of money on, who wanted to heal my uh, kidneys with some uh, strange organic tablets. Right. <laughs> anyway, um, anyway it, it all didn't work. April of 2013, I was rushed to the hospital and, um, and both my kidneys had packed up. I think this is just a short version. Um, and uh, I was put on dialysis um, the next day to keep me alive. And long story short, I was on dialysis for 15 months. Um, and Karen uh, courageously decided to donate one of her kidneys to me. Wow. Okay. This yeah, that really just, is uh, upping the bond, isn't it, between you? Yeah, exactly. Um, in fact, we have a joke about that. I, I, I'm a music fanatic, but there's one era that I was not into, and that was the 80s. And Karen loves 80s music. Well, she, so that, she and I have got a lot in common there, then. Oh, really? Yeah, okay. yeah. I'll have to tell her that. Uh, <laughs> well, I'm, I'm actually okay with it now, too. So, ah, good. Um, it's happened by osmosis, hasn't it? Well, exactly. This is point. Quite literally, what happened is that one day I was listening to some music, New Order or something like that. And, and, and I said, Karen, I'm listening to this 80s music. I really quite like it. She said, no, I'm not surprised. You've got my kidney in you now. So there was, <laughs> was literally taken on her love of 80s music through her, her kidney that was now in me. Um, but she, 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 she was very courageous because, in fact, in my book, there's a chapter that I asked her to write to give her, her story, to share it with all those people who might consider donating their organs to someone. Okay. And what she, went through, what she went through was a lot of resistance from her family, from her friends who said, no, you shouldn't do it, you know, blah, 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 for all kinds of reasons. Mm. But she had the courage to stick with it, despite her fear. Yeah, and your, the book you wrote about that, that survival um, story is uh, like an Americanism, it's like, got a kidney. Yeah, yeah. It's because I, I I wrote it and published it uh, while I was in America. Um, and I've and, seen the book, and it's actually you wrap up the kidney on the, as the front jacket, the cover. And you know, my my podcast is called The Gift, and it, it just had resonance for me that that was an amazing gift that you wrapped or she wrapped up for you. It's, yes, it's brilliant, and I was uh, very fortunate. My dear friend Vish. Vishnu Chapalamadigu, a.k.a. Chapman, when he first came over to America. Uh, he, he has a, a publishing venture, and he donated the, his creative artists and designers. Um, so they did the, the very good cover. As you say, the kidney wrapped up as a gift, because it was a gift, and it is a gift. Uh, it was the greatest gift I could have received. You know, it was essentially my life, giving me my life. and. Uh, so, uh, I'm sorry about the, a lot of people, English people really don't like the got a kidney, but if Vish suggested the title, I thought that's great. Got a kidney, a question mark, exclamation mark. Yeah. You know, have you got one? Cause I need one. <laughs> you need you know? one. Yeah. And, and also I got a kidney exclamation mark. Okay. So both, I got you. Yeah. Uh, but the subtitle is a journey through fear to hope and beyond. And, and it's really the story. Love story as well. 
And because you've been through so many trials and tribulations, as you've just talked about, Michael, and you said that that Yorkshire friend of yours said bluntly, do you want to survive? Or do you want to die? Um, and it, you alluded to what it taught you about the power of the mind. Do you feel or do you agree that, you know, you are your thoughts? So once you have these uh, setbacks, it's up to you to mentally find your way back. But I suppose m the more setbacks you have, it's like, a, it's like exercising a muscle. You used to, you know that you've actually get th got through the last one. And there's a way forward. Would you be? Would you agree with that? Yes, I would. I mean, I, uh, you know, the the word resilience comes up for me mm. uh, when I think about the fact that you're right. It's it's actually a bit like a muscle. That's a good way of putting it. That over time, my resilient, my ability to be resilient has increased, and it's uh, I'm stronger in that sense now than I ever was. Um, and um, I think when I, when I sort of clarify something, when I, when I said that when I was 25, I learned that I wasn't my mind, I wasn't my thoughts, I have my thoughts. However, I also believe that, you know, through your thought, you can create reality. Yeah. And you also make choices through your mind about how you want things to be. You're not a victim. You actually have a, a choice in life uh, about which way you go and how you respond to things. Yeah. Um, and what I meant by not being your thoughts is that uh, you are not ultimately just the, the sum product of your mind. In fact, if you were, God help us. A lot of people think they are because that's all they know. They're in their head. <laughs> exactly. But, but, you know, one of the things you learn in meditation or... <clears throat> as you probably know, um, or in any kind of self-reflection activity or lifestyle, there's no doubt about it. Most of what goes through your head is a bunch of garbage. Yeah. And it's awful. It's absolute meaningless crap. <laughs> yeah. Most but, of our, our, our thought, our thinking is tuned to negative FM, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it's not terribly helpful. Um, yeah. one, one thing that the gift it draws upon is not taking anything for granted um, to switch off the autopilot and being more present in the here and now, which a lot of people who are listening may want more of, not necessarily sure quite how they can achieve it themselves. What's your version of being in the moment? And, and you know, what makes, you, what makes a, a moment feel so special for you or pleased to be alive? That's a great question. <clears throat> well, I've tried all kinds of meditations for starters, uh, which is you know, about being present. Um, and at the end of the day, I decided actually years ago that being present is something you can do at any time of any day or night. And that being present is simply a function of being conscious of what is in the moment. And, I'll, and that's different from what can happen a lot of the time, what does happen a lot of time, is that there are two, two other things that can go on that keep you from being present. One is uh, dwelling overly long on your memories or on what happened yesterday or last year or, yep. you know, uh, and so on. Uh, the other one is thinking about what's going to happen or what you think is going to happen in the future. 
Of course, it's all hypothetical because it hasn't happened. Yeah. <laughs> and by the way, yesterday, all those memories and thoughts, well, yesterday, what happened happened. It's history, gone. You're not there anymore. Yeah. But a lot of people spend a lot of time in their, what I call, in their head. And if you're in your head in the future and the past, you're not present. So for me, being present is something you can choose to be. And if you're not present, you can choose to get yourself back into the present, like now. I mean, literally now, when I'm talking to you, Tim, I can be thinking about, well, what, what are we having for lunch? I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> or, and I'm not with you. Yeah. Or I can be present and I can experience, and this is a great way to be present, experience what I'm feeling in my body, the, the, the body sensations, the feelings, what's going on in my head right now, and not just inside me, but at the same time outside of me. You're there in front of me. I can see you. I can also see the beautiful trees through the window and the wind moving the leaves, uh, the roses uh, up against the brick, lovely old brick wall. Um, I am fully present when I'm experiencing what I'm experiencing now and now and now. You yeah. know, the, yeah. the ever-present now. And, yeah. but a lot of people, a lot of the times we, we, we try to avoid that because it's painful sometimes. Yes. Or you just, um, it's forming a habit as well. I mean, every day I look to try and anchor myself with nature. I think there are many ways to force being present, um, to take yourself away from the mind projecting you backwards or forwards. And I use nature, um, as you just alluded to the outside. Nature costs nothing. It's right on your doorstep. It could be, could be for me, birdsong. Just listening to that and, and all your senses. I do, what am I seeing? What am I hearing? What am I feeling? And even what I'm smelling on a, you know, that could be the, you know, in the summer, grass has just been cut. And, and actually all you're doing is just being in the now. And that is a way I have found really very helpful. And of course, people talk about the breathing of meditation. Um, that again takes a while. People shouldn't feel that they've got to get that sussed within one day. That takes a while to settle in and find the best way that suits you. Would you agree? Yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, which is why what suited me is ultimately not to do a, a practice of meditation, a formal practice, a particular yeah. practice. Uh, my meditation is literally every day in, and being conscious. Mm. You also asked me in that question uh, a couple of minutes ago, what makes me feel happy to be alive? And I mean, I think it is for me, Tim, and this is something still developing in me, the appreciation of how really small things are so fulfilling. I'm talking about when I finished my conversation, with you, I might go into the garden and I might look at the beautiful colors and the flowers in our, in our backyard, mm. I might, um, you might say something, I just might appreciate what you just said fully. Mm. Um, small things that make a huge difference to the quality of your life and fulfillment. Uh, and if we're not present, it's hard sometimes to see those things. We miss out on them. Our heads are full of, oh my God, I've got to get the next meeting, I've got to do this, I've got to do that. Uh, it's all so stressful. Well, well, while you're there, it's like that John Lennon quote you said, while you're there, you're missing out. I mean, yeah. yeah, yeah. 
what would you say with your um up and downs of life would say is your best day ever and why ah the that is a great question and um i remember you suggesting i think about that and i there are so many so many great days i mean i what, what do I choose? I mean, when I got, my first thought actually was getting 99 not out to win the game <laughs> back when I was in, at university in the cricket team, um, including the first time I'd ever hit a six, I hit three sixes. One of them went over the oak tree, over the road into a garden. I mean, me, puny little Michael, actually hit a massive six. Uh, the worst thing was that because I was the, the hero of the day, um, and I was on 95, and, and uh, I had to hit a six to get my 100. Um, and I actually hit the ball to mid on, should have been fielded. The bloody guy missed it. He went under his feet. And went for four. His, it went for four, and I, I ended up 99 not out. I'd never got 100. <laughs> and I never have got 100. But anyway, no, the, really the most important, uh, the best day of my life, I think, the thing that I... I that came up for me was when I stayed overnight with Karen for the first time. Uh, we weren't boyfriend, girlfriend, there was no sex involved. Um, and we just lay there in bed together, holding each other. And uh, the way I describe it is it was like coming home. For me, it was coming home. It, I was 50. It took me that long. You asked me about after my marriage, and I mentioned Christine, Marina, there was loads of others, relationships after that. And it took me to when I was 50 to meet the love of my life. And so that feeling of coming home was, I'll, I'll elaborate a little on that because I think it's important. Men especially have checklists, I think. When they have a new girlfriend or potential wife or partner, they go, they got the checklist. Does she, is she intelligent enough? Is she good looking enough? Does she have, you know, all these things. And I'd yeah. always had checklists. And of course, it's like buying a house, you have your checklist, your cri 10 criteria for what's gonna be the right house to buy. And it, I found that you never get 10 out of 10, it just doesn't happen, you get eight out of 10 or nine out. So I was never fully satisfied in any relationship. And with Karen, I'm not kidding, I didn't try to force, the checklist wasn't there. It just okay. wasn't there anymore. Yeah. So coming home was for me was, oh, what a relief. Um, it's just unconditional love. Wow. And yeah, you felt it. Yeah. Your bootstraps. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and it's true. And that's it. And, and that's, that's where we are. And I mean, we've been together now for almost 15 years and uh, had an amazing journey together. And, right. Well, uh, I'm utterly delighted that you found each other. Thank you very much. She's lost a kidney, but gained her love for her life. <laughs> <laughs> and now we've got two kids as well. Uh, yes, yes. So, Freddie and Rana. Freddie and Rana, the Yorkshire Freddy. Terriers. Um, <laughs> so the, the name of this podcast is The Gift, and I always ask every guest what gift they'd give the listeners in the form of advice or a quote as their sort of leaving present. Okay. Um, I think 
the that if there's one thing you can do to be uh, to have a fulfilling life, in my experience, it's to find the love and freedom that comes with being fully authentic. And so I know that for me, my life has been one journey towards realizing myself as an authentic human being. And when, in my experience, it's not theory, when I've realized more and more my authenticity, the more freedom I feel to be myself, the more good I feel about myself, and the more able I am to love and to be loved. Because I'm not trying to defend anything, to hide anything, um, and I am released to care about others, to re release, to connect with other people, because I'm not having to deal with my false self, which is that construct that, that if you like, that small ego that uh, is really a construct of beliefs and judgments and God knows what else. So yeah, authenticity is, is, is the way to go. Okay. Uh, it requires courage. It does require courage. It doesn't come overnight. Well, thanks for those pearls of wisdom and for being so candid about your life story. And I know there's many other parts of your story that's still untold, but for the ones that you've shared, they really resonate with me and for listeners who want to know more about the gift and how it can help them. Uh, so thank you very much, Michael. Should anybody want to reach out to you personally, how could they do that? Okay, a um, couple of ways, really. Uh, one is social media. I'm on Facebook, and I'm also on LinkedIn. As Michael Banks. Michael Banks. Michael Banks on LinkedIn, and you can go on Facebook, Michael Banks. So those two things primarily. I'm just beginning to get into Instagram, but uh, I don't, I'm not used to checking it, but if you want to actually contact me, I do check Facebook and LinkedIn regularly. Then okay. the other way is through email. And it's very simple. My email address is michaelbanks seven. That's one word, M-I-C-H-A-E-L-B-A-N-K-S, and the digit seven, my lucky number, at gmail.com. So michaelbank7 at gmail.com. Great. And thank you for that. And thank you for your time. It's meant a lot for me to have you as a guest on my show. Well, Tim, thank you. I really, I said at the beginning, I'm honored to be on your show. And, uh, and thank you, because it's a gift to me to be able to talk about my life and hopefully uh, it, it to be of use or relevance or interest to people. So it will thank be. you very much. Appreciate it. Thank you. Um, so the, if anybody wants to know more about The Gift or myself, Tim Watton, they can use my name at Tim Watton via the usual social media or my website, timwatton.com. Um, feel free to reach out should you want to give me feedback, know of a guest for the show or would like to know more about how the gift can help you. But for now, as I sign off always, yours cup half full. Thank you.